The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Last time we finished with Christian and Hopeful escaping Doubting Castle, where the giant despair had locked them up. Now, they got out by means of a key that Christian had had with him the whole time. And what was that key? Do you remember? It was the promise. And it's so exciting how that promise was able to get get them through every locked door. And in the tape series that I listened to, it's very dramatic. The key changes shape and size to fit the need. As you go to each, each obstacle, the promise changes its shape and size so that you can get through that obstacle. And that's a, a marvelous thing. So they're able to escape and get away from uh, the giant despair. Now, as you have sensed the rhythm of Pilgrim's Progress, this uh, time in Doubting Castle is probably the worst trial that they have had. Probably it is the most terrible time. So what do you expect next in Pilgrim's Progress? Think about it. Think of the rhythm and the way it usually goes. What's that? A time of rest, a time of refreshment. And so it is. And that's what happens almost every time. They go through a terrible trial, and it's not yet another terrible trial next, but a time of refreshment and renewal. And so it is that God measures out our trials and also measures out our times of renewal and refreshment. It's not too much of the one, neither is it too much of the other. The time of refreshment can't go on too long, and at the end of each one of them, they feel eager and urgent actually to continue their journey because they're not home yet. These are just way stations of pleasure and renewal. They're not meant to be permanent resting places. That's not to say that some Christian couldn't take on a Christian camp where there are retreats done and that's their permanent ministry. I'm not saying that at all because even within that there are going to be trials and difficulties and temptations. The point is in the Christian life, for the most part, those times of refreshment are just meant to be way stations and then we continue on in our journey. Now, such is the delectable mountains. The delectable mountains. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Sounds almost like a place in Candyland. You know, the, the, the children, children's game of Candyland, which I have yet to win as far as I know. Maybe I'm wrong. I, don't, I never win Candyland. I always get Mr. Plumpy when I'm real close to the <laughs> Christian version of, or the Candyland version of the Celestial City. I never make it. But um, anyway, they make it to the Delectable Mountains. They went on, it says then, till they came to the Delectable Mountains, which mountains belong to the Lord of that hill, which we have spoken before. So they went up to the mountains to behold the gardens and orchards and the vineyards and fountains of water. where also they drank and refreshed themselves and did freely eat of the vineyards. Now there were on the tops of these mountains shepherds feeding their flocks, and they stood by the highway side. The pilgrims therefore went to them, and leaning upon their staves, as as is common with weary pilgrims, when they stand to talk with any by the way, they asked, Whose delectable mountains are these, and whose be the sheep that feed upon them? So anyway, they go up the mountains and they meet these shepherds. I believe the shepherds are types or pictures, again, of pastors. Uh, It makes sense because the word pastor itself is connected to the word to shepherd. Uh, There's a sense of the shepherding ministry that these have. And so they are there taking care of the Lord's sheep. The delectable mountains are a place of refreshment and the pilgrims need it, don't they? Because they're leaning on their staves. They're leaning on their walking stick. They're worn out. They're weary pilgrims and it's time for refreshment and God be praised. He gives it to them. The shepherds answer, these mountains are Emmanuel's land and they are within sight of his city. And the sheep 
are also his, and he laid down his life for them. Is this the way to the celestial city, asked Christian? You are just in your way. Christian said, how far is it thither? How much longer do we have to go? It's not just children on long car trips that ask that question. I think Christian is wanting to be there. He's wanting to get there. This is one of the marks of a true Christian life, a yearning for heaven, a yearning and a desire to be through with the temptations and struggles of this world that we might go on and be able to make it to the celestial city. How far is it thither, asked Christian. Now listen to the answer. It is too far for any but those that shall get thither indeed. Isn't that striking? How far is it? Well, it's too far for any but those that are going to make it. (laughs) Kind of a puzzle, isn't it? Well, that kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? Is the way safe or dangerous? The shepherd answered, it is safe for those for whom it is to be safe, but the transgressors shall fall therein. So you get the sense if you're the Lord's sheep, if you're one of the Lord's sheep, you're going to make it the whole way and it's going to be safe for you. But if you're in that way and not one of the Lord's sheep, and we're going to meet some of them tonight, it's not a safe journey for you and you will not make it all the way. That's how it works. Christian asked, is there in this place any relief for pilgrims that are weary and faint in the way? The shepherd answered, the Lord of this mountain hath given us charge not to be forgetful to entertain strangers. Therefore, the good of the place is before you. Isn't that beautiful? The gift of hospitality, an openness in the home to say, please come in if you're a weary pilgrim. Come and rest here. Be refreshed. The good of this place is before you. Isn't that a wonderful attitude? Do you feel that way about your home? Do you feel that way about your food, about your beds? about your comforts? Could you say to a weary pilgrim, the good of this place is before you. Come and be refreshed here. This is the gift of hospitality. And so the shepherds welcome them in. I saw also in my dream that when the shepherds perceived that they were wayfaring men, they also put questions to them um, to which they made answer as in other places such as whence came you and how got you into the way and by what means have you persevered so therein. Now this is a repeated theme, isn't it? How many times has Christian had had to go through this, this close questioning? Where did you come from? Where are you going? How did you get in the way? How's it gone for you so far? It's again and again. And I think, especially in that these represent, I think, probably pastors, these shepherds are pastors, uh, I think it's, it's probably, again, reasonable for a pastor to be asking these kinds of questions when he first meets a pilgrim. And so it is for us, um, as we were saying during our prayer time, we have 18 people in our membership class so far. We may actually get a few more between now and, the, and Friday. So it's a fantastic thing that God is doing, but one of the things that we do as pastoral staff is ask them these kinds of questions. You know, there is a certain process to joining a Baptist church. And so also it was with these shepherds. They want to know, tell us your story, I want to hear. And it's not a burdensome thing. It's a joyful thing to tell how God has worked in your life. It shouldn't be, what am I being grilled here or something? Well, no, it's an opportunity to give testimony to what God has done in your life. And you should do it gladly. You should always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so uh, they are asked these questions and they answer them. But when the shepherds heard their answers, being pleased therewith, they looked very lovingly upon them and said, welcome to the delectable mountains. So there's that sense of asking and then the welcome. The shepherds, I say, whose names were knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere, took them by the hand and had them to their tents and made them partake of what was present. I'm skipping down a little further. Then I saw in my dream uh, that in the morning the shepherds called up to Christian hopeful to walk with them uh, upon the mountains. And so they went forth with them and walked a while, having a pleasant prospect on every side. So it's a beautiful walk they're going on. They're looking around these mountains and it's beautiful. Then said the shepherds one to another, shall we show these pilgrims some wonders? Let's show them something 
useful in their journey, some wonders. So when they had concluded to do it, they had them first to the top of a hill called Error, the Hill Error, uh, which was very steep on the furthest side. And they bid them look down to the bottom. So Christian and Hopeful looked down and they saw at the bottom several men dashed all to pieces by a fall that they had had from the top. Then said Christian, What meaneth this? The shepherds answered, Have you not heard of them that were made to err by hearkening to Hymenaeus and Philetus concerning the faith of the resurrection of the body? This is in Second Timothy 2. They said that the resurrection had already come and they destroyed the faith of some, it says in Second Timothy 2. And so they listened to their errors and they were dashed to pieces at the bottom. They answered, Yes. Then said the shepherds, Those you see lie dashed in pieces at the bottom of this mountain are they. And they have continued to this day unburied, as you see, for an example to others to take heed of how they clamber too high or how they come too near the brink of this mountain. The point is, watch out for doctrinal error. Doctrinal error is deadly and dangerous. You should take everything that you hear, all the teachings you hear from me or any other teacher, and test them against Scripture. Do they line up with what the testimony says? To the law and to the testimony. And if they do not line up, with the law and the testimony, they have no word of light to be speaking. Yes? Is there a error no, but that one apparently was. They destroyed the faith of some, so it says. But we know also that uh, the next thing Paul says in Second Timothy uh, 2 is the Lord knows those who are his. Okay, so the doctrine of election is not overturned thereby. It's just that those folks did not have the ability, the wherewithal to refute the errors, and so they were lost. And these testimonies are frequent in Scripture, aren't they? We have many warnings in Scripture, many warnings to keep us on this way, on the pilgrim way. And so they um, were warned to about error. Uh, one of the lessons here is they clambered too high in their doctrinal thinking. What does that mean? Well, avoid speculation. A lot of doctrinal error comes from going way beyond what Scripture says about certain things. Uh, it's speculation. Just stick to what the text says. And if the text doesn't cover it, then don't speculate about it. You're going to fall into error. Then I saw that they had them to the top of another mountain. And the name of that mountain is Caution, Mount Caution. And they bid them look far off. And as they did, they perceived, as they thought, several men walking up and down among the tombs that were there. And they perceived that the men were blind because they stumbled sometimes upon the tombs and because they could not get out from among them. Then said Christian, what means this? The shepherds then answered, uh, Did you not see a little below these mountains a certain stile that led into a meadow on the left hand of the way? They answered, Yes. Then said the shepherds, Well, from that stile there goes a path that leads directly to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair. And these, pointing to them among the tombs, came once on pilgrimage, as you do now, even till they came to that same stile. And because the right way was rough in that place, uh, they chose to go out of it into that meadow and there were taken by giant despair and cast into Doubting Castle where after they had been kept a while in the dungeon he did at last put out their eyes and led them among those these tombs where he has left them to wander to this very day that the saying of the wise man might be fulfilled he that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead now what impact do you think that had Christian and hopeful. <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's terrifying. They look down at these blind men who, are, who had their eyes put out by the giant despair and they must be thinking, why didn't that happen to us? How did we escape? How did we get out? Then Christian and hopeful looked upon one another with tears gushing out, but yet they said nothing to the shepherds. 
Why didn't they say, well, you know, actually, we have a story to tell. (laughs) They felt a sense of shame, I'm sure, that they had jumped over that fence and gotten out of the way, and a sense of gratitude to God that they had been safely brought back. And so it is, again, the lesson emphasized. See, Bunyan's just, it's just amazing. He doesn't let it go, does he? A lot of times, these leavings of the way, he'll go back later and mention it. Like Apollyon mentioned several times that Christian had fallen to the slough of despond and had been tempted to go to, uh, by worldly wise men to get out of the way, etc. He doesn't forget. And so also there's a, a humility that comes from remembering your own wanderings out of the path and how gracious God has been to bring you back. You realize he doesn't owe it to you? He doesn't owe it to you to bring you back if you choose to wander away. But he is faithful and he does bring them back. And so their eyes were filled with tears and they said nothing to the shepherds. Then I saw in my dream that the shepherds had them to another place in a bottom where there was a door in the side of a hill. And they opened the door and bid them look in. They looked in, therefore, and saw that within it was very dark and smoky. They also thought that they heard there a rumbling noise as of fire and a cry of some tormented, and that they smelt the scent of brimstone. Then said Christian, What means this? The shepherds told them, This is a byway to hell. So it's like they're looking down into hell a way that hypocrites go in at, namely such as sell their birthright with Esau, such as sell their master with Judas, such as blaspheme the gospel with Alexander and that lie and dissemble with Ananias and Sapphira his wife. Then said hopeful to the shepherds, I perceive that these had on them, even every one, a show of pilgrimage as we have now, had they not? Yes, said the shepherd, and held it a long time too. Well, how far might they go on in pilgrimage in, that, in their day, since they notwithstanding were thus miserably cast away? The shepherd answered some further and some not so far as these mountains. Stop there. Isn't that interesting? Well, yeah. It's Bunyan. I'm not saying that they're in hell. We don't know for sure. But certainly Ananias and Sapphira are meant to be a warning, are they not? Uh, there's no question about that. So the point is, what does he say? He asks a question. He says, um, didn't they look like they were on pilgrimage, all of these? Yeah, they sure did for a while. And how far did they journey? And what was the answer? Some have come, didn't, you know, lost it before they got to these mountains, and some after. Now, why is that particularly poignant? Still danger. They're not finished yet. Is there ever a time you can just get comfortable in the Christian life and say, I'm finished, I don't need to fight anymore, I don't need to wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, I'm just going to coast on flowery beds of ease the rest of the way and God will bring me home. If you're alive, you're still supposed to fight, put on the spiritual armor, you need to stand firm day after day. So there's always this sense of, I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet, I'm not safe, not really. I need to keep pushing, keep pressing on. And that's exactly what Bunyan is giving here, this sense of, we need to keep moving. And by the way, when they get done with this, they're going to say, let's go on, let's go. I, I, you know, They want to get to the celestial city. There alone is their final safety. The world of the flesh and the devil will be an issue until you're there. And that's the thing. There's a sense of seriousness. Some went further than you and some not so far as these mountains. Then said the pilgrims to one another, we need to cry to the strong for strength. See, that's the point. The point is to get you so that you do not trust in yourself any longer. You're not looking inward for the answer for this pilgrimage. You're not saying, I don't know if I can make it. 
Well, you couldn't make it anyway. From the very beginning, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And he who began a good work in you will, in fact, carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. But you're not looking in for the strength. We, may, we need to look to the one of the strong one for strength. We need to look to God. That's what they said. That's the right answer. I and you will have need to use it when you have it too, said the shepherd. <laughs> so that's it. Again, another serious warning. We need to keep looking to the strong one for strength. And he says, yes, and you're going to need it too. By this time, the pilgrims had a desire to go forward. You hear that? And the shepherds, a desire that they should. So they walked together toward the end of the mountains. Then said the shepherds one to another, let us here show to the pilgrims the gates of the celestial city. If they have the skill to look through our perspective glass, that's a telescope. The pilgrims then lovingly accepted the motion. So they had them to the top of a high hill called Clear, and they gave them their glass to look. Then they essayed to look, but the remembrance of that last thing that the shepherds had shown them made their hands shake. So they had had a vision of hell, and now they're having a vision of heaven, but they are still terrified by what they've seen, and so their hands aren't quite so steady. But they're still looking through, and by means of which impediment they could not look steadily through the glass. Yet they thought they saw something like the gate and also some of the glory of the place. What do you think this corresponds to in the Christian life, this telescope look here? What is this? So they're looking ahead to a celestial city. Do we have glimpses like this, a telescope look at the celestial city? Okay, where, when do those glimpses come? How do you get such a glimpse? How do you get handed the telescope to gaze at the gates of heaven? Where was that? You know, yeah. So times of revival, perhaps, yeah, or a time of spiritual high, like you said, a time, an, an extraordinary prayer time might do it. Uh, a sermon, perhaps, God would speak to you. You're hearing the word of God, and there's a sense of the beauty and the glory of heaven. Maybe even right now you get a little bit of a telescope look at heaven. And it's refreshing, isn't it? That's all it's meant to be, just to keep you going. They're going to get it again in Beulah land when they you know, get nearer and nearer the celestial city. They get clearer and clearer visions. Sometimes God... I don't know if you remember my sermon in, on the baptism of the Spirit in Romans 5. And, and there are times that God pours out in the filling of the Spirit a sense of His presence. I remember Jonathan Edwards fell to the ground for about an hour and had a sense of the immediacy and the presence and the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, He doesn't do that for, for just anybody and everybody, but we should still seek for it, I think. And we should ask, God, give me a telescope look at heaven so that I might be renewed and refreshed in my journey. So at any rate, the shepherds give them that. When they were told, when they were about to depart, one of the shepherds gave them a note of the way. Now, you might miss what that is, but basically it's a map. He gave them a road map. Okay? He gave them a, a, a road map. Another uh, of them bid them beware of the flatterer. The third bid them take heed that they sleep not upon the enchanted ground. And the fourth bid them Godspeed. So they gave them four things, a map, a warning, a warning, and a blessing. That's what they get from the shepherds. Now, basically, if you look at what the shepherds have done, they did the exact same thing that the interpreter did. Put them in fear and hope, right? Fear and hope. It's the same thing. There's a sense of the fear of hell. Uh, you know, remember how their hands were shaking when they had the telescope? Because they were thinking of the seriousness of the judgment of God. And then the flip side, hope, a sense of the vision of God and the glory of God in heaven. And that moves you along, doesn't it, in your Christian journey? It moves you along. So that you don't take, 
uh, bypass out of the way. You don't indulge in sin and lust. You don't give way to your flesh. Neither do you uh, get overwhelmed with sorrow, grief, and despair, but you keep having a refreshed and renewed vision of heaven. Fear and hope all the time keeps you moving on. All right, and then at the end he says, so I awoke from my dream. Who's the I? Bunyan, right? He just wants to put himself in his story. There's no other purpose, just, and so I awoke from my dream. Lest anyone should think I had a really, really long dream, okay? And then I slept and dreamed again and saw the same two pilgrims going down the side of the mountain along the highway. So, I mean, I've never had a dream that's like part A and part B, but I mean, that's exactly what happens here. And actually, when we get into Christiana, it just keeps on going. So it's just an amazing dream he's having here. I slept and dreamed again and saw the same two pilgrims going down the mountain along the highway. Now, as they're traveling, there's this crooked lane from the town of Conceit, which comes into the way. And as they're walking along, they meet a very brisk lad that comes out of that country, and his name was Ignorance. This is a very important character from here on out, this guy, Ignorance. So Christian asked him what parts he came from and where he was going. Ignorance. Sir, I was born in the country that lieth off there, a little on the left-hand side, and I'm going to the celestial city. But how do you think to get into the gate? For you may actually find some difficulty there. Uh, as other good people do, said he, but what have you to show at that gate that you that may cause that the gate should be open to you? Uh, you know, if you look at that right there, is that not the evangelism explosion question? If you should die and be standing before God and he should ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? That's the exact evangelism EE question right there. Centuries before, D. James Kennedy. <laughs> what do you have to show at the gate that may cause that the gate should be open to you? Ignorance. I know my Lord's will, and I have been a good liver. <laughs> okay? Any of you trained in evangelism explosion, whenever you hear that, it's like, okay, this person may need the gospel. Um, I pay every man his own. I pray, I fast, I pay tithes, I give alms, and have left my country for whither I'm going. So how does that sound? That sounds pretty good, don't you think? Well, he's going to get his later on, so we'll get to him by and by. Christian, but thou camest not in at the wicked gate that is at the head of this way. Thou camest in hither through that same crooked lane. And therefore, I fear, however, thou may, mayest think of thyself. When the reckoning day shall come, thou wilt have laid to thy charge that thou art a thief and a robber instead of getting admittance into the city. Boy, this is plain speaking, isn't it? Do we do this? I don't, I don't know. I feel like even in witnessing, it's like, well... You know, you might want to consider this or whatever. We're just so gentle all the time. I think it's good to be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, Philippians 4. But there's a time for a little bit more vigorous dealing, like woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, that kind of thing. And how do you know the difference? You know, sometimes the Lord does the one and sometimes the other. Uh, you just have to rely on the Holy Spirit to tell the difference. But here, Christian's very vigorous and he says, I fear for you. He basically says, I fear for your soul because you didn't come in at the wicked gate. You snuck in from the side. And it's been my experience that all those sneaker inner types, and it's not looking good. All right, ignorance. Gentlemen, ye be utter strangers to me. I know you not. Be content to follow the religion of your country, and I will follow the religion of mine. This is just tolerance is what it is, isn't it? Again, centuries before, it's so vo much in vogue in our country. You follow your way, and I'll follow mine. And then listen to what he says next. I hope that all will be well. Mm. I hope all will be well. And as for the gate you talk of, all the world knows that that is a great way off from our country. I cannot think that any man in all our parts do so, so much as know the way to it. 
nor need they matter whether they do or no, since we have, as you see, <laughs> a fine, pleasant green lane that comes down from our country the next way into the way. What do we need to go all the way out to the wicket gate for? We've got this nice little crooked lane that comes right in, and it's a comfortable journey too, right into the way. So, when Christian saw that the man was wise in his own conceit, he said to Hopeful, whisperingly, there is more hope uh, for a fool than for him. And said, Moreover, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him. And he saith to every one that he is a fool. And so they continue on. Now, at this point, I'm going to skip on ahead. Because what I want to do, all right, we, we have the story of little faith. And it's something that Christian remembers. And the basic lesson is this. I'm doing this because I want to get on ahead to... Um, hopeful's testimony and then their grilling of ignorance and do they do grill him uh we'll get to that later on but little faith basically the story goes this way that little faith was traveling along in his way and suddenly three rogues tough guys come down from the broadway gate that's the broad road the opposite of the narrow way faint heart mistrust and guilt and they basically beat this guy up and mug him and they take his his um what bunyan calls his traveling money but they cannot take his jewels. Why? Because they're stored up in a safe place. But they can't take away. They do take away his um, traveling money, spending money. The rest of his jewels are safe. Now, the point that's made here is where there is faint heart in God's cause and mistrust of God's truths, there will be guilt in the conscience and but little faith. These rogues will prevail over and rob such souls of the comforts of God's love and of Christ's salvation. In other words, if you have but little faith, you are vulnerable to losing some earthly comforts in your Christian pilgrimage. You see what I'm saying? You can get robbed. You can get mugged. But your true riches cannot be taken from you. You see? Then comes a discussion between hopeful and Christian, basically to the end that little faith should have fought harder <laughs> and not had these things taken away. And basically Christian upbraids him saying, it's very easy to talk about a hard fight if you've never fought it. It's easy to talk about putting on your armor and standing if you've never been through it. It's much harder to actually be tempted and tested and tried and stand firm. I have faced these three and they're tougher than you think. That's what Christian says. And you've never been through it, so you don't know what you're talking about. And that's in effect what he's saying. There is a difference between little faith and Esau. And this is the whole thing. Hopeful says, in effect, Esau gave up his things. He traded him in. He could have cashed in his jewels and had more comforts along the way. And Christian says, you don't know what you're talking about because Esau and little faith are completely different. Now, this is such a crucial, vital thing. Little faith is somebody who's weak in faith. They make mistakes in their Christian life. They're weak. They're vulnerable to temptation. They have problems, but they still have faith. Esau is a different nature, a whole different situation. Listen to what Christian says. Esau did, in fact, sell his birthright, and so do many besides, and by so doing exclude themselves from the chief blessing. But you must put a difference betwixt Esau and little faith and also betwixt their estates. Esau's birthright was typical. That is, it was a prediction or a prophecy, a type of the future. But little faith's jewels were not so. Esau's belly was his God, but little faith's belly was not so. Esau's want lay in his fleshly appetite. Little faith's did not so. Besides, Esau could see no further than to fulfilling of his lusts when he said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright be to me? But little faith, though it was his lot to have but little faith, 
by his little faith was kept from such extravagances and made to see and prize his jewels more than to sell them as Esau did his birthright. You read not anywhere that Esau had faith, no, not so much as a little. Therefore, no marvel if where the flesh only bears sway as it will in that man where there, where there is no faith, if he sells his birthright and his soul and all and that to the devil of hell. For, for it is with such as it is with the ass who in her uh, occasions cannot be turned away. In other words, in her heat, she's passionate in, in heat. The donkey is in heat and is going to go after what the flesh desires. So it is with an Esau type person cannot be turned away from his lusts. When their minds are set upon their lusts, they will have them at whatever cost. But little faith was of a different temper. His mind was on things divine. His livelihood was on things that were spiritual. And from above, therefore, to what end should he that is of such a temper sell his jewels, had there been any that would have bought them, to fill his mind with empty things? Will a man give a penny to fill his belly with hay? Now, what is he saying? Esau and little faith are of two different natures entirely. Esau will do anything to fulfill his fleshly desires. But little faith will not do for anything, uh, will not trade his heavenly jewels. Now, what is that? It's his salvation. It's his faith. It's that which is kept up in heaven for him, and he will not cash it in to meet his needs. Though faithless ones can for carnal lusts pawn or mortgage or sell what they have and themselves outright to boot, yet they that have faith, saving faith, even but a little of it, cannot do so. So he's making a distinction between a carnal person, somebody who has no faith, and somebody who has little faith. And there's a very great difference, isn't there? Now, little faith may look weak. He may have problems. He may get mugged. He may lose some of his earthly comforts, but he's going to end up in heaven. Esau is not, and that's the whole thing. There's a big difference, a world of difference, between having little faith and having no faith at all. Well, then they talk about... Um, Christian warfare, and it's a great section, and we're going to skip it entirely. We're going to say this. He does list great men of God who were sorely tempted and tried and distressed and had great difficulties, like Paul, who said, um, we despaired even of life. David uh, went through difficulties, Hezekiah and Peter also. And what basically Christian is saying is that it is a hard and bitter struggle to walk this pilgrim way. Don't expect it to be easy, and don't think so lightly of little faith that he was mugged. Okay, it's a tough fight. And then they talk about the dangers of temptation, and then they come to the fork in the road. So come down now to the fork in the road. I don't know what page you guys are on, but I'm skipping through all of these things to the point where ignorance comes and they follow. Then they went on, they came to a place where they saw a way put in itself in their way and seemed with all to lie as straight as the way wherein they should go. So they basically are coming to a fork in the road, and it looks kind of like this. Okay, Both of their ways are straight and they don't know whether to go left or to, or to go right. Up to this point, it's always been clear. One of them went off, veered off, but these both seem to go straight and they have a very difficult choice before them. And as they were thinking about this, behold, a man black of flesh but covered with very light robe uh, came to them and asked them why they stood there. They answered that they were going to the celestial city but knew not which of these ways to take. Follow me, said the man. It is thither that I am going. And so they followed him in the way. But now they came indeed to the road, which by degrees turned and turned and turned them so from the city that they desired to go that in a little time their faces were turned away from it, and yet they continued to follow him. So basically they chose the way that this man, black of flesh but covered with a white garment, told them to go. And then, if this is the fork, they go like this, and then little 
little at a time, it turns until they're just facing exactly the opposite direction. They're going the wrong way. Okay? So they turn away from it. But by and by, before they were aware, he led them to within the compass of a net in which they were both so entangled that they knew not what to do. And with that, the white robe fell off the black man's flesh. Then they saw where they were. Wherefore, they lay crying for some time, for they could not get themselves out. Then said Christian to his fellow, Now do I see myself in an error. Did not the shepherds bid us beware of the flatterer? As is the saying of the wise man, so we have found this day, a man that flattereth his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Hopeful answered, they also gave us a note of directions. They gave us a map. Oh, yes, the map. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. Well, there it is. God gives you everything you need for life and godliness. doesn't mean he's not going to test you and put you in difficult ways to see if you will remember past instructions. Didn't they say, here's a map for your journey and here is uh, a warning, watch out for the flatterer and then some other warnings too, whatever they were. You've already forgotten, look back. Okay. At any rate, they had everything they need for life and godliness. Everything for the journey was given them, but they didn't consult the map, did they? And so they were led astray by the flatterer and next thing they know, they're in a net. All right, they also gave us a map about the way for our more sure finding thereof, but therein we have also forgotten to read and have not kept ourselves from the pass of the destroyer. Here David was wiser than we, for he said, concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the pass of the destroyer. Thus they lay bewailing themselves in the net. What a pathetic scene, all right? They're, they're caught up in this big hunting net, kind of suspended up above the, you know, like that, like a gazelle or something, or two of them, wriggling around and moaning and crying. I tell you what. Then suddenly they espied a shining one coming towards them with a whip of small cords in his hand. We'll get to that later. <clears throat> when he was come to the place where they were, he asked them whence they came and what they did there. They told him that they were poor pilgrims going to Zion, but were led out of the way by a black man clothed in white who bid us, said they, to follow him, for he was going there too. Then said he with the whip, it is the flatterer, a false apostle, he that transformed himself into an angel of light. So he rent the net and let the men out. So he gets them out. He cuts the net and they get down. Then he said to them, follow me and I, that I may set you in your way again. So he led them back to the way that they had left to follow the flatterer. So he walks back with them to this point and sets them in the proper journey again. Then he asked them some questions. Ah, yes, the painful questions. Um, where did you spend the night last night? Well, we, uh, we were with the shepherds at the Delectable Mountains. Ah, okay. Uh, did the shepherds not give you a map of directions? Uh, yes, they answered. Uh, but did you, when you were at a stand and puzzled what direction to go, pluck it out and read the map? Uh, no. <laughs> he asked them why. They said, what do your kids say? We forgot. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, he asked them, moreover, did, did the shepherds not bid you beware of the flatterer? Well, uh, yes. <laughs> but uh, we did not imagine, they said, that this fine-spoken man had been he. <laughs> That's pathetic. What did you think a flatterer was? Then I saw in my dream that he commanded them to lie down. 
which when they did, he chastised them sore to teach them the good way where they should walk. And as he chastised them, he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So he gives them a beating, a little whipping. Is this part of the Christian life? Oh, yes. And uh, what is the nature of these things? Well, basically, the entire universe lays at God's disposal. He can use anything that's precious to you to discipline you, anything at all. Go list your top 20 most important things, and all of them are fair game, all of them. Do you really want to test him? (laughs) You know? Well, at least we have our health. Uh Uh-oh. You know? (laughs) You know? What, What might it be? How about sweet times of fellowship and prayer with God? Is that fair game for discipline? Absolutely. All of a sudden, your heart's grown cold toward God. How about a love for the Scripture? Yes, that as well. How about uh, family relationships, children? How about your family's health? How about your possessions, your car, your house? How about your business and the successes thereof? All of it lays open as fair game. All of it. And it's all under his power, isn't it? What fools we are to test him and tempt him. It's better to stay in the road, don't you think? (laughs) So we keep walking in the way. And yet, it's a mark of his love for us that he disciplines us. Those that are not chastised or not disciplined are actually, it says, bastard sons, not true sons in, in Hebrews 12. You're illegitimate children if you're not disciplined. So he loves us, he chastens us if we get out of the way. And it helps, doesn't it? We remember. <laughs> and we're careful. And so those whom I love, I discipline, I rebuke and chasten. And so uh, they thanked him for all his kindness. This done, it says, he bid them go on their way and please take good heed to any other directions the shepherds might have given. And what were they? Don't sleep in the enchanted ground. Remember? That's yet to come. All right. So they thanked him for all his kindness and went softly in the way. Now, this is so sweet. The thanking is part of the wisdom of the Christian life. It is what marks in the book of Proverbs the difference between a wise man and a fool. Both of them commit sins. Both of them have difficulties because of this sin. But the wise man considers it rebuking and chasing from the Lord and thanks the person who gives it or thanks God for giving it. And why? Because the way of sin is the way of death and they want to get quickly back into the way. And so they're very grateful. So if you go to a wise man, a wise woman, a brother or sister in Christ and point out the sin, do it biblically, do it gently, do it lovingly, but do it, they will ultimately thank you for having done it. You've protected them. You've kept them from wandering into the ways of death. That's sweet fellowship and it's a good thing. So, test yourself. How do you react when someone, like a spouse, for example, might uh, point out a failing? Are you very humble and just so grateful for the way that... um, (laughs) Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that God put you in my life to help me in my Christian walk. Right? Well, you answer that for yourself. At any rate, perhaps some of you never need that kind of correction. All right, and then they sing a song. Come hither, you that walk along the way. See how the pilgrims fare that go astray. They catched are in an entangling net because they good counsel lightly did forget. <laughs> Tis true they rescued were, but yet you see they're scourged to boot. Let this your caution be. Don't lightly forget good wisdom and good instruction that God gives. Now, as they travel along the way, they meet somebody going the opposite direction on the road. And his name is Atheist. He's running the opposite, going the opposite direction. They ask him where, and Atheist asks them where they're going. Well, we're going to Mount Zion. Then Atheist fell into a very great laughter. He's laughing at them. What is the meaning of your laughter? Atheist answered, I laugh to see what ignorant persons you are to take upon you so tedious a journey. 
yet are like to have nothing but your travel for your pains. The Christian answered, Why, man, do you think that we shall not be received? Received? There's no such place as you dream of in all this world. Yes, but there is a world to come, said Christian. When I was at home in mine own country, I heard, as you now affirm, and from that hearing went out to sea and have been seeking the city for 20 years, but find no more of it than I did the first day I set out. Christian, we have both heard and believed that there is such a place to be found. Atheist, had not I, when at home, believed, I had not come thus so far to seek, but finding none, and yet I should, had there been such a place to be found, for I have gone to seek it further than you, I am going back again, and will seek to refresh myself with the things that I then cast away, for hopes of that which I now see is not. So in other words, I'm going to go back to a carnal life, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die, and you guys are wasting your time. I've been looking for a long time, and there is no celestial city. Then Christian said to Hopeful, uh, his fellow, Is it true what this man has said? Christian asked Hopeful this. Is it true? Take heed. He is one of the flatterers, said Hopeful. Remember what it hath cost us once already for hearkening to such kind of fellows. What? No Mount Zion? Did we not see from the delectable mountains the gate of the city? Yet also are we now to walk by faith? Let us go on said Hopeful, lest the man with the whip should overtake us again. Isn't that sweet? So Hopeful, actually at this point, is quite worried about Christian, but Christian was really just testing Hopeful, that's all. So what do you think? He said, well, all right, you passed the test. My brother, I did not put the question to thee for that I doubted of the truth of our belief myself, but to test you and to fetch from you the fruit of the honesty of your heart. As for this man, I know that he has been blinded by the God of this world let you and I go on knowing that we have the belief of the truth and no lies of the truth. So I saw then in my dream that they went on till they came to a certain country whose air naturally tended to make one drowsy if he came a stranger to it. And here hopeful began to be very dull and heavy of sleep. Wherefore he said unto Christian, I do now begin to grow so drowsy that I can scarcely hold up mine eyes. Let us lie down here and take one nap. By no means, said Christian. Lest sleeping, we may never wake again. Why, my brother, sleep is sweet to the laboring man. We may be refreshed if we take a nap. Do you not remember, said Christian, that one of the shepherds bid us beware of the enchanted ground? He meant by that that we should beware of sleeping. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. First Thessalonians 5, 6. Hopeful re responded, I acknowledge myself in a fault. And had I been here alone... I had by sleeping run the danger of death. I see it is true that the wise man saith, Two are better than one. Hitherto hath thy company been my mercy, and thou shalt have a good reward for thy labor. Isn't that sweet? This is again the protection of good, solid, godly fellowship. You can't do it without the church. You just can't. You can't make it alone. You need somebody. Because we all have our moments of weakness, don't we? Our moments of temptation, our moments of discouragement and despair. And you can't make it alone. Have you ever witnessed to or talked to somebody who says, I can worship God as well at home or alone than going to a church where there's all those hypocrites? Are there hypocrites at church? Absolutely. I actually can think of no better place for a hypocrite to be cured of his hypocrisy. That's exactly the place to go. <laughs> so the fact is that we need each other, don't we? We need to be in covenant fellowship in a local church. And you need that the rest of your life. Whether it's this church or wherever God may lead you, you need to be in covenant faithfulness, uh, uh, covenant fellowship so that people will be around you like Christian was for hopeful here to protect you, keep you safe. 
Now then, said Christian, to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us fall into good discourse. Let's have a good conversation. Reminds me of Christy and I driving really, really late back from a wedding once, and neither of us wanted to drive because we were absolutely exhausted. The kids were asleep in the back seat, and um, I was hallucinating while driving. You know when you're driving at night and the, and the lines are going like that, and then they start going this way and that way, and, you know, and it was dangerous. <laughs> I said, well, let's, um, let's have a conversation. And so we talked, and we alternated. We, drove, we each drove about eight minutes at a time. I think I would drive eight minutes. <laughs> and she would drive eight minutes. <laughs> that was a long drive home. We finally got home. But anyway, let's have a good conversation and keep alert. And now comes Hopeful's testimony. This is just so, so precious. Now, the thing as we get into Hopeful's testimony, I want you to notice, is the process by which he comes to faith in Christ and how much there is to it. It's not small. This is what I call... A hopeful's Puritan testimony because the twists and turns of the road just seem so much more extreme than the ones we go through to come to Christ. And that's not to say we haven't come to Christ. I'm just saying there was just so much more, more soul-searching and dealing with the law and prayer and seeking and crying and still not finding and trying again than we see in our conversion sto- stories. Then Christian began and said, I will ask you a question. How came you to think at first so doing as you do now? Hopeful said, how do, you, do you mean how I came first to look after the good of my soul? Yes, said Christian, that's my meaning. Well, I continued a great while in the, in the delight of those things which were seen and sold at our fair. Remember, he's from the town of Vanity. And so he said, I began for a long time to really enjoy those things that were sold at Vanity Fair. I liked them. Things that were seen and sold at the fair. Things which I believe now would have, had I continued in them uh, still, drowned me in perdition and destruction. I used to enjoy sin. I did. I used to live in it and enjoy it. Well, what things were they? Hopeful. All the treasures and riches of the world. Also, I delighted much in rioting, reveling, drinking, swearing, lying, uncleanness, Sabbath-breaking, and whatnot that tended to destroy the soul. But I found at last, by hearing and considering of things that are divine, which indeed I heard from you, as also from beloved faithful that was put to death for his faith in good living and vanity fair, that the end of these things is death. So God used Christian and faithful to open his eyes to the danger of his sins. The end of these things, or the wages of these things is death. And that for these things' sake comes the wrath of God upon the children of those who disobey. And did you presently fall under the power of this conviction, asked Christian. No, said Hopeful, I was not willing presently to know the evil of sin, nor the damnation that follows upon the commission of it but endeavored when my mind at first began to be shaken with the word to shut mine eyes against the light thereof. Christian, but what was the cause of your carrying of it thus to be the first workings of the blessed Spirit of God upon you? Hopeful. The causes were, number one, I was ignorant that this was the work of God upon me. I never thought that by awakening for sin, God at first begins the conversion of a sinner. Number two, God was, uh, sorry, sin was yet very sweet to my flesh and I was loath to leave it. Uh, number three, I could not tell how to part with mine own, my old companions. Their presence and actions were still desirable unto me. And number four, the hours in which convictions were upon me were such troublesome and such heart-affrighting hours that I could not bear, no, not so much as the remembrance of them upon my heart. And so he's going over his history of how he felt when the conviction of sin first came in him and how he would throw it off. He didn't want to think about it. It wasn't, it wasn't pleasant to him and he didn't know how he could change his life. And so he tried to shut his mind against this feeling of conviction of sin. Christian, then as it seems, sometimes you got rid of your trouble. Yes, said Hopeful, verily. 
but it would come into my mind again. And then I should be as bad, nay, worse than I was before. Christian, why? What was it that brought your sins to mind again? Many things. As, one, if I did but meet a good man in the streets, or two, if I heard anyone read the Bible, or three, if mine head did begin to ache, or four, if I were told that some of my neighbors were sick, or five, if I heard the bell toll for some that were dead, or six, if I thought of dying myself, or seven, if I heard that sudden death happened to others, or eight, but especially when I thought of myself that I must quickly come to judgment. So he was thinking about sickness and death and dying and judgment. And this would bring back his old conviction of sin. And he saw himself to be in a dangerous place. Christian, and could you not at any time with ease get off the guilt of sin when by any of these ways it came upon you? Couldn't you throw it off? Of course, Christian knows the answer to that question. Remember how the whole story began with that huge, terrible burden on his back. He couldn't get it off. And this is Hopeful's version of his burden. He said, no, not I. For then they got faster hold of my conscience. And then if I did but think of going back to sin, though though my mind was turned against it, it would be a double torment to me. Christian, and how did you do then? Well, I thought I must endeavor to mend my life. Ah, What does this remind you of? Turning off to morality, right? I need to do better. I need to be a better person. I need to give to the United Way more. I don't think they had that back then. Anyway, I need to be more moral. Just try better. All right, and did you endeavor to mend your life? Yes, I fled not only from my sins, but from sinful company too, and betook myself to religious duties such as prayer and reading and weeping for sin and speaking truth to my neighbors, etc. These things did I with many others too much here to relate. Christian, and did you think yourself well then? Yes, for a while, said Hopeful. But at the last, my trouble came tumbling back upon me again, and that over the neck of all of my former reformations. Christian, how came that about since you were now reformed? Hopeful, there were several things that brought it upon me, especially such sayings as these, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, or by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, or when ye shall have done all of these things, say we are just unprofitable, with many more such like. From whence I began to reason with myself thus, if all my righteousness are filthy rags if by the deeds of the law no man can be justified and if when we have done all we are yet unprofitable then it is but a folly to think of heaven by the law now listen to this this is beautiful i further thought this if a man runs a hundred pounds into the shopkeeper's debt and from that day forward shall pay for all that he buys yet if this old debt stands still in the book unpaid that shopkeeper may sue him and throw him into debtor's prison Is that not a significant point? You begin reforming from that point forward. Maybe you think you're leading a perfect life. We'll get to that in a minute, because actually you're not. But even if it were true, what about the other things? You've already done enough to condemn you to hell. What are you going to do for those past things? Very good point. It's kind of like saying you could use that as an illustration if you uh, um, are witnessing. Let's say you run up a a big debt at the mall, at a store in the mall. And uh, then you come in and say, you know, well, I'd like to buy some more things, and I promise you from now on I'll pay. I've got cash right here in my hand. What are they going to say? Well, that's very well, but what about your past debt? It needs to be paid. And that's the whole point. Well, said Christian, and how did you apply this to yourself? Why? I thought thus with myself. I have by my sins run a great way into God's book, and that by my now reforming will not pay off that score. Therefore, I should think still, under all my present amendments, But how shall I be freed from that damnation that I brought upon myself in danger of by my former transgressions? 
Christian, a very good application, but pray go on. Another thing, this is so key, that hath troubled me ever since my late amendments is this, that if I look narrowly into the best of what I do now, I still see sin, new sin, mixing itself with the best that I do, so that now I am forced to conclude that notwithstanding my former fond conceits of myself and duties, I have committed sin enough in one duty to send me to hell, though my former life had been faultless. Do you hear that? If I had committed no sins up to this point, my best action the next moment would be enough to send me to hell. That is a picture of utter hopelessness, isn't it? We know that our former life hasn't been faultless. Not at all. That's why we first came into conviction. But now as we look ahead, as we stand where we are and look ahead, we realize we can't even do a single good thing. Not one good thing unmixed by sin. And so we're stuck, aren't we? What do we need? We need a Savior. We need Jesus. But, you know, we we skip all this stuff, don't we? We don't get to the point of desperation where we see that only Christ can save me. Well, this is, like I said, his Puritan testimony, but it should be a Christian testimony, right? And so he realized that he had committed enough sin to send him to hell. And what did you do then? Do, said Hopeful. I could not tell what to do until I break my mind to faithful, for he and I were well acquainted. And he told me that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that had never sinned, neither mine uh, mine own nor all the righteousness of the world could save me. You need the righteousness of a perfect man. That's what you need. And did you think he spoke the truth? Had he told me so when I was pleased and satisfied with my own amendment, in other words, when I was doing well in my praying and fasting and Bible reading and all that, I had called him a fool for his pains. But now since I see mine own infirmity and the sin that cleaves to my best performance... I have been forced to be of his opinion. I need a better righteousness. I need to do better than I do. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will by no means enter heaven, Jesus said. So, I need a perfect righteousness. But did you think when he first suggested it to you that there was such a man to be found of whom it might justly be said that he never committed a single sin? I must confess the words at first sounded strangely, but after a little more talk in company with him, I had full conviction about it. Christian, and did you ask him what this man was, what man this was, and how you might be justified by him? Hopeful, yes. And he told me it was the Lord Jesus. It's taken a long time to get to Jesus, hasn't it? (laughs) All this moral reformation and law and guilt and condemnation, and finally we're at Jesus. Yes, he told me it was the Lord Jesus that dwelleth on the right hand of the Most High. And thus said he... You must be justified by him, even by trusting to what he hath done by himself in the days of his flesh and suffered when he did hang on the tree. I asked him further how that man's righteousness could be of that efficacy to justify another before God. And he told me he was the mighty God and did what he did and died the death also, not for himself, but for me, to whom his doings and the worthiness of them should be imputed if I believed on him. This is how they shared the gospel. This is evangelism, isn't it? So beautiful. And what did you do then, said Christian? I made my objections against my believing, for that I thought he was not willing to save me. He's not willing to save me. (laughs) And what did Faithful say to you then? He bid me go to him and see. I said, no, it's presumption. But he said, no, for I was invited to come. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You have the invitation. Then he gave me a book of Jesus his indicting to encourage me the more freely to come. And he said concerning that book that every jot and tittle thereof stood firmer than heaven and earth. 
Then I asked him, What must I do when I came? And he told me that I must entreat upon my knees with all my heart and soul the Father to reveal him to me. Then I asked him further, How must I make my supplication to him? And he said, Go, and thou shalt find him upon the mercy seat, where he sits all the year long to give pardon and forgiveness to them that come. I told him that I knew not what to say when I came. And he bid me say to this effect, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and make me to know and believe in Jesus Christ. For I see that if his righteousness had not been, or if I had not faith in that righteousness, I am utterly cast away. Lord, I have heard that thou art a merciful God and hast ordained that thy son Jesus Christ should be the Savior of the world. And moreover, that thou art willing to bestow him upon such a poor sinner as I am. And I am a sinner indeed. Lord, therefore, take this opportunity and magnify thy grace in the salvation of my soul through his son, Jesus Christ, through your son, Jesus Christ. What is that? That's a very long sinner's prayer. (laughs) More than anything, it's a prayer that God would reveal Christ to him. Reveal Christ to me. That's what he's saying. Show me Christ. Show me my forgiveness in Christ. Christian, and and did you do as you were bidden? Did you do it? Yes, over and over and over. Now stop there. What would you say at that point? Come on now, be true. One sinner's prayer is all you need. Is that true? Well, apparently not. Over and over he prayed this prayer. Let's keep going. And did the Father reveal his Son to you? Not at the first, nor the second, nor the third, nor the fourth, nor fifth, nor at the sixth time, neither. Mm. What did you do then? What? I didn't know what I could do. Had you not thoughts of leaving off praying? Yes, a hundred times twice told. And what was the reason that you did not leave it off? Well, I believed that that was true which had been told me, namely, that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. And therefore I thought with myself, if I leave off, I die. And I can but die at the throne of grace. And with all this came to my mind, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So I continued praying until the Father showed me his Son. And how was he revealed unto you, asked Christian? Hopeful, I did not see him with my bodily eyes, but with the eyes of my understanding. And thus it was. One day I was very sad, I think sadder than at any one time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. And as I was then looking for nothing but hell and the everlasting damnation of my soul, suddenly as I thought, I saw the Lord Jesus look down from heaven upon me and saying, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. But I replied, Lord, I am a great, a very great sinner. And he answered, My grace is sufficient for thee. Then I said, But Lord, what is believing? And I saw from that saying, He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. That believing and coming was all one. And that he that came, that is, ran out in his heart and affections after salvation by Christ, he indeed has believed in Christ. Then the water stood in mine eyes, and I asked further, But Lord, may such a great sinner as I am be indeed accepted by thee and saved by thee. And I heard him say, And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Isn't that sweet? It's a revelation of Christ directly to his soul, directly to his heart. Then I said, But how, Lord, must I consider of thee in my coming to thee, that my faith may be placed aright upon thee? 
Then he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Romans 10.4 He died for our sins and rose again for our justification. Romans 4.25 He loved us and washed us from our sins by His blood. Revelation 1.5 He is a mediator betwixt God and us. 1 Timothy 2.5 He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 From all of which I gathered that I must look for righteousness in His person and for satisfaction for my sins by His blood. And what he did in obedience to his father's law and in submitting to the penalty thereof was not for himself, but for him that will accept it for his salvation and be thankful. And now was my heart full of joy, my eyes full of tears, and my affections running over with love to the name, the people, and the ways of Jesus Christ. What a process. Now, if you ever read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is Bunyan's testimony, it was just like this. If you read David Brainer's conversion, it was just like this. Read George Whitfield's, same thing. Again and again, we have the testimony of these kinds of wranglings and strugglings over our souls. I'm going to finish with this. Christian, this was a revelation of Christ to your soul indeed, but tell me particularly what effect this had upon your spirit. Hopeful. This is the effect of salvation. Now listen. It made me see that all the world, notwithstanding all the righteousness thereof, is in a state of condemnation. So he sees the world differently now. It made me see that God the Father, though he be just, can also justify the coming sinner. Secondly, thirdly, it made me greatly ashamed of the vileness of my former life and confounded me with the sense of my own ignorance. For there never came thought into my heart before now that showed me so much the beauty of Jesus Christ. It made me love a holy life. Did you hear that? It made me love a holy life and long to do something for the honor and glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. Yea, I thought that had I now a thousand gallons of blood in my body, I could spill it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus. That is a thorough, deep conversion, isn't it? That's his repentance and his faith, and God has worked it in him. I just think this is astonishing. And my feeling is, I think that we ought to be searching people's hearts in evangelism. We ought to be reaching out with the law first, more than anything. It's the law that prepares the heart for salvation. Without law work, there can be no gospel work. And uh, all of the old preachers and divines, they knew that. And so they did the thorough law work first. Why? So you get to the point where you have absolutely no hope in yourself. And then you're ready for Christ. Frankly, if you're holding on to some part of your flesh, yourself, etc., you're not trusting Christ. And so it is that uh, salvation came to hopeful. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied tonight. We thank you for the example. We thank you for the way that they traveled and, Lord, for our encouragement, the way that they lived. We thank you, O Lord, that they were not perfect, that they sometimes fell into sin. Christian and hopeful sometimes through foolishness got off the way and were chastened and gotten back into the way. We thank you for the hope and fear mingled that they got from the shepherds at Delectable Mountains and how they had a vision of hell and also a vision of heaven. And what effect that would have on our lives if we kept before us constantly those two eternal realities. I thank you also for the testimony of Hopeful and how he came to faith in Christ and what a journey it was for him. Father, we pray that we would also understand what you did in our souls that we might have eternal life. Thank you for those that are here tonight and thank you for the time that we spent uh, in study. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.